So I don't know if you've read any of the latest craze of books by Suzanne Collins, but uh, Suzanne Collins does know the power of a good story. Her first book in her trilogy, The Hunger Games, sold 1.5 million copies in the first 14 months. The movie, I guess, made $152.5 million on opening weekend. I'm like, could I have the .5? You know, I'd use it for ministry, I promise, but $152.5 million on opening weekend. Now, now I picked up the book, uh, and I honestly devoured the first one. It's, it's dark. At, at first, the, um, the challenge of the book is... It's it's tough. It's a brutal, awful post-apocalyptic world um, where where people are controlled by the oppressive capital, kind of the lead part of the country, and they they control through starvation and then through this thing called the annual Hunger Games, where basically they um, force two people from each of their districts that are 12 to 18 years old to compete to the death for the sport and entertainment of the gluttonous, youth-obsessed, beautiful people of the capital. And in many ways, it reminds me of Holy Week, uh, where, where Jesus was celebrated on this day as Messiah that we've come to know as Palm Sunday, that he was led in on a, on a donkey, which had amazing meaning for the Jews. He is led as if he is the anointed true king, king of the Jews, king from David, and people are saying, blessed is he who comes. And just a few days later, they are shouting, kill him, kill him, crucify him. And I imagine it um, with the same intensity and inhumanity as my stomach kind of got in knots as I read this ugly book called The Hunger Games. Bethany Hamilton, if you've heard of her, she knows the power of God in her story as well. They made a movie called Soul Surfer based on Bethany Hamilton. Uh, she was just a little surf rat in Hawaii who learned to surf at a very young age. And she went from just being kind of a no-name, I love to surf and I love Jesus girl to a worldwide name. She has gotten to use her worldwide name to tell people about her story and the story of Jesus. There was a catch for this. A shark took her left arm at 13. Jesus knows the power of a good story as well. And two, he knows the power of God in a story. He knows that people are thirsty for something far greater than water. Clean water at that. He knows that people are hungry, hungry for something far more than than a good read. He knows that people are looking for a true and right relationship with the one creator God and a God who makes things right in the world. This perfect blend of mercy and justice coming together. And and maybe you're here today and and you... um, are kind of eking out an existence. You know, things are okay, but, but deep down your soul is longing for more. You want more than money. You want more than stuff. You want more than hollow relationships. You have a hunger 
that needs to be satisfied. Maybe you're here and, and your hunger is sort of satisfied, but, but you are sick in the core with the injustice you see in the world. That people starve, that people are oppressed, and it is a reality far beyond a science fiction book. And maybe you're here today and your, your deepest hope has truly been satisfied in Jesus. Like we just celebrated communion and as you and I partake of the body and the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus through communion, you know that it fulfills the promises that God had made long ago to his people, that not only are these things fulfilled, but then he calls us to be a part of that fulfilling. And even as I say that, you think of friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and and people who have not been blessed by God or have not acknowledged that God has blessed them or is working in their life, and you so desperately want to share with them who God is and what Jesus means to you, and you just are not sure how to do that. Wherever you're at today, whether it's deeply hungry or deeply satisfied, I think each of these thoughts are addressed in the passage that we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in John 4. And we're actually going to listen to, um, to John 4 in just a minute. Um, but a little background on the story. John 3 we looked at last week. In John 3, we see um, this man named Nicodemus. And, and Nicodemus is the top of the social Jewish class. If you could get the creme de la creme, he is, he is it. He is the teacher of Israel, not just a teacher of Israel. He's kind of at the top of that list. He's in the top, he's in a part of the top Jewish ruling council. He is a Pharisee, so he is one who strictly follows God's law and by all outward observance has impeccable moral character. And he can trace his family line all the way back to Abraham, who is the source of the Jewish people. I mean, you can't get a more perfect A1 class person to, to that end than Nicodemus. And then we come to John 4, and we get this obscure woman from Sychar. Sychar's in Samaria, and, and you couldn't be more opposite in this now. Now we have a woman, and I'm all for women, I mean, I mean that in the most righteous way, but uh, I do. <laughs> but women had no credibility, no status at that time. So first of all, no credibility, no status. Second, Samaritan. And Samaritans were, were part of Israel, but they were part of Israel that rebelled. So when, when the king, David, was king, he had a son, Solomon, and Solomon was an okay king, and then Solomon had a son, and when that son was king, the nation split, and the rebellious people were, it became Israel, the not-so-rebellious people, but still not great, became Judah, and Israel was part of that rebellious people. Israel had no good kings. Israel... Um, Bocked at God. Israel then got bullied and, and taken over by this nation called Assyria. And Assyria tried to like genetically wipe them out by having them intermarry. Tried to religiously wipe them out by having them take over the pagan gods. And so the Jews who tried to remain faithful hate 
the Samaritans hate. But they're still technically kind of part of God's people. And the Samaritans, they only buy, they only submit to the first five books of the Old Testament. So, so she's got that going for her. And three, by all outward appearances of her moral character, is not good. It is not good. In fact, I don't think you could find two more opposite people in the spectrum, which is exactly why I believe that John, the amazing writer that he is, picks those two people to have interviews with. Now listen as we uh, hear the first part of John's gospel in John 4. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir... I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I one speaking to you. I am he.
God, we thank you for your word, that it is, um, that it stands the test of time, that it continues to be the the greatest bestseller ever, but more important than that, it is the words of life. And I pray that we'd find it today. If we have it, God, I thank you that we have life and that we would cling to it. And if we don't, I pray that you would um, give us wisdom far beyond that what we can ask to find life, that your spirit would be present, that would be living and active and, and speaking to our spirit about what what we need to hear, and what we need to do um, based on what is in your word. So I pray that that would come through most clearly today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've heard a lot of messages about this first part, this part that we listen to. Um, I've done a lot of messages on this first part of this book of John and, and the interaction with Jesus and the woman, but I very much neglected the second part of that. And I see um, some amazing insights in the second part, so I want to get there. But what's the point of the story? Why, why did Jesus include this story, or why did John include this story of Jesus? Um, and I think it goes back to that point of these two very opposite people But in them, we find some great similarities. First of all, Jesus takes risks. He risked insulting the teacher of Israel. This man, Nicodemus, who sits on the Jewish ruling council that would condemn him later. Um, he, He takes risks and he challenges Nicodemus. He also takes risks by talking to this woman, which in that culture you just didn't do. If he's a Jewish man and he's a rabbi, he would not talk to this woman who is not from his culture, who's from somewhere else. And not only does he take the risk, but he offers both of these very opposite people an invitation to conversation. He starts with a spiritual metaphor. One, he starts with new birth. The other, he starts with living water, both representing the same thing. And they're both confused by them. And then he tries to clarify that, and there's more confusion, and he tries to clarify that, and then there's more confusion again, and then one gets it, and we don't hear about the other one. And can I just stop and say, this gives me a lot of hope, Um, not to be totally distracting, but like a lot of times I'll try and talk to people about Jesus, and they'll just get confused. And now I'm like, oh, Jesus confused people too. I'm okay. Uh, I don't think that's the whole point of the story, Uh, but it gives me a little, little hope. He, after he goes through the confusion and the clarification, the most important thing is he identifies himself. To Nicodemus, who would totally understand this, from the prophets Ezekiel and the prophets Daniel, he says, I am the son of man, which has huge messianic implications to who he is. To the woman, he doesn't say, I'm the son of man, because she wouldn't know those stories, because they don't read Daniel, they don't read Ezekiel, they only take the first five books. But in Deuteronomy 18.18, it does talk about Moses, talking about this prophet that would come after him, that would be like him, that is the Messiah. And so Jesus uses the word Messiah, because she would understand what that meant. And so he identifies himself. In both conversations, he's offering new life. He's offering it to anyone and everything, everyone. If he could offer it to the highest of the elite and the lowest of the low for social status, then he must be offering it to everyone in between, no matter what. Have you ever taken in that statement that Jesus offers new life to anyone and everyone, no matter what their race, no matter where they live, 
no matter what they know, no matter how moral or immoral they are, Jesus offers that new life. And that, that gives me hope because sometimes I think I'm pretty good and I think I'm a lot like Nicodemus. And then I see Jesus challenging Nicodemus to believe and trust. And then sometimes I'm not so good. Uh, sometimes I'm a whole lot more like that woman and I realize that Jesus corrected her too. But he identifies himself and he says, I'm the Messiah. And, and wherever you're at today, I really, I want you to hear that, that Jesus is willing and ready to say, do you believe who I say I am? Based on the evidence that you have, are you ready to trust me? I mean, if you have questions, it's okay. We want this to be a place where questions are totally willing, totally accepted. But Jesus still says to the people who have questions, I'm the Messiah. Have I given you enough evidence to trust me? And so we pick up the story in verse 27, and the disciples come back, and they return, and they're surprised to find Jesus talking to this woman because, again, they wouldn't do that. But nobody asked, what do you want? No one asked, why are you talking to her? And then she left her water jug, and she went back into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, the disciples are saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he says, I have food that you don't get, that you know nothing about. And they're like, could someone have brought him food? Like the disciples are confused too. And he says, my food comes from doing the will of the one who sent me. Don't you have a saying, four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes. The fields are ripe. For the harvest, even now, the one who reaps and draws the wage and harvests the crop of eternal life so that the sower and reaper may be glad together. People who have planted the seeds before you, disciples, did the work, and now you get to come and reap that work. You should be glad together because, we'll talk more about that in a second. Thus, the one who reaps and another sows, or the one who sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Okay, here, um, what's going on is these disciples are shocked that Jesus is talking to this woman. She sees them, their conversation's over. She realizes his, he's the Messiah. She leaves her water jug which, and then runs back to the village. And, and I wonder who the disciples talked to in town because they went into town to get food. They went into a Samaritan village as Jewish men. My guess is they did as little talking to people as they had to because they don't like each other. I'm assuming they had to pay someone to buy the bread and the food, but very little would have been said. I don't think the disciples went in with their eyes open and said, Lord, God, we know who the Messiah is. We think it's for everyone. We're going to tell people, hey, do you know we're with the Messiah? We're with the one. The one that way, way before when our nations were together that you wanted to see, yeah, he's here. They didn't say that. At least by all 
from what we know of the story, there was no conversation like that. The disciples are completely confused. They went into town to buy their food and they left. That's all they did. And you know what? I think sometimes I'm so much better than the disciples. And then I realize that I go into a store and I go, I just want to get my food and I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to tell anyone about Jesus. Besides, like I talk about Jesus for my job. So can I just have a break? Can I just go into a restaurant? Can I just eat and not talk about Jesus? You know, can I... Can I just take communion or do I have to pass communion? Think about that. Because I think sometimes that's true of each other. Sometimes that's true of us. We just want to take communion. We don't want to turn and pass communion. I was out on a date with my wife last night and, um, and I sensed that our, our waitress is just kind of eking out in existence too. I mean, she was fun. She, she talked about kind of these, these fun things she did, but I just sensed that there was, there was a gap, there was something missing. And, um, and I'm, I was like, I'm on a date, I don't really want to do this. But then I thought about it, and I'm like, who am I to act like the disciples? Who, do, who am I to think that, that Jesus is just for me? And so I threw out a spiritual metaphor, which led to total confusion. Um, I'm, I'm not making this up. This really did happen. And uh, unfortunately, unlike Jesus, then the conversation was over. She didn't get it. She didn't want to ask any more questions. It was just kind of done. But, but it reminded me of how quickly I go to be like one of the disciples. And maybe, maybe you do too. Do you look and pray for ways to share the good news of Jesus? As we've talked about in this series called The 72, we have to pray and we have to know Jesus' story, but then we have to be willing to share our story. And my friend Michael knows um, Jesus and knows how to do that, and he's going to come and share part of his story. Good morning. Uh, my name is Michael Nybakken. I'm the happy husband of Julie Nybakken and the proud parent of Hannah. I'm a pilot, a pool player, and I love Jesus. I've kind of subtitled this uh, thing, God's Not Finished With Me Yet. Just like the Samaritan woman from Sychar, I want to tell you about my past, tell you how Jesus came with miraculous power, and invite you to take the next step. Three weeks ago, Lucas said, everything begins with prayer. And I really believe that. My grandparents used to pray for all of us grandkids, praying that we would trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. To the best of my knowledge, all 11 of us have accepted Christ. But the challenge was that both of my parents were alcoholics. I remember being embarrassed and wondering what reflection their behavior had on people's opinion of me. I believe both of my parents were saved. But drinking was a huge priority in their lives much more than going to church on Sunday morning. My grandfather knew he needed to take the next step. He knew that if I was going to be in church on Sundays, that he was going to have to be a part of it. So every Sunday morning, an hour or so before church, he would come over, have coffee with my mom and dad, and then off to church we would go. When I was 13, I was sitting in a youth church service. Uh, Rudy Reamer was speaking about how some people only believe parts of the Bible. He vividly illustrated this concept by picking up a Bible 
and started to tear pages out of it. While he was doing this, he said, we don't need this part. This part is way too hard. Tithing? <laughs> he tore out page after page until there's just a little tiny bit left. He finally says, now, here's a guy that I can serve. That demonstration had a huge impact on me. I, I then realized how much I loved the Bible and that the Bible was God's word. Not some of it, but all of it. I needed to take the next step, and I gave, the, I gave my heart to the Lord shortly thereafter. In my teen years, God definitely had an effect on me. Something was different about me. In fact, I remember being called a goody two-shoes. But outside of church, I really didn't have any Christian friends. And the friends I did have, they, were just not, they weren't great by God's standards. The world and sin quickly crept into my life along with many wrong choices. And one of my biggest downfalls was girls. And all the sin that revolves around having a relationship with a girl when you're not married. This continued into my late 20s. But during this time, I still had a hunger for God. Many, many mornings I would get up and I would read my Bible. I remember I always prayed for faith and wisdom. Wisdom to get me through life and faith to help me believe God and his word. I'm glad I didn't die at that time because although I may have gotten to be with Jesus, I certainly wasn't all in. I still had too many questions, too many doubts and insecurities. So I kept pushing it off. I was on the wrong path and I knew it. I wanted to be the God of my life. Around 30, all the years of reading my Bible, church and Sunday school were finally sinking in. I still had many questions, but I wanted God in my life, and I realized that God had given me enough evidence to make a decision. The time had come for me to take the next step. I remember being in my kitchen, leaning against my stove and praying, Lord, I've been doing it my way, and it's just not working. And even though I don't have all the answers to all the questions that I have, you have given me enough evidence to trust you. Lord, from now on, I will try to do it your way. I want to put you first, and Lord, I'm going to take you at your word. And I'm going to trust that you're going to answer my remaining questions somewhere along the way. <clears throat> Looking back, that's when God really started moving in my life. I felt that God wanted me to take the next step and to start learning more about him. I had heard a, about a Bible course called Perspectives of a World Movement, and I felt I should go. The problem was is I didn't have the $225 it took to get into the course, and the deadline for getting the money in was that day. And I remember praying, Lord, if you want me to go, you're going to have to make this happen. So I went down to my mailbox, and there were two checks in there, and they totaled almost exactly $225. I went, okay. I took the next step and I started tithing. God spoke about tithing in Malachi. Test me in this, he said, says the Lord God Almighty. So almost defiantly, I put God to the test. And I can tell you many stories of how God came through. I stepped out in obedience and God built my faith. One of the gifts that God has given me is prayer. Definitely not in eloquence, but in the releasing of God's power. And I've been told on many, many occasions that my prayers are very powerful. God just answers my prayers. Ain't me. 
I learned about prayer through a small Bible study. We were led by a wonderful pastor friend named Lynn. She took this uh, group of baby Christians and she molded us. We would study the Bible and then we would do one-sentence prayers. We would take turns praying out loud just one sentence. And with much fear and trembling, I would occasionally squeak out one sentence. But I quickly noticed that when I prayed out loud, my prayers got answered. And when I didn't speak out the prayer, my prayers weren't answered that much. You see, God was in the process of answering my prayer that I'd been praying forever for faith. He was doing this by answering my prayers. But the answers weren't just to be for me. I was to be a conduit of his power for others. So I needed to take the next step and get over my fear of praying and sharing my faith with others. This is the good part. I was in my 40s, and, I, and I'm a pilot, and I was on a layover somewhere, and I gave this money to a street person. And I usually say, God loves you, which really doesn't mean anything. You can say that to anybody. But this time I said, Jesus loves you. And the man literally jumped up, and he said, why do you say this? Well, I was quite startled. I was nervous. I was unprepared. But I shared what I knew of God's story with him for 10 minutes, and I told him I would pray for him. And he goes, pray for me now. I then reached my hand out on, and I laid my hand on his shoulder, and I prayed the best I could for like two or three minutes for him. And then I asked him his name. You guys know what his name was? Godsend. Godsend. I honestly believe that God wanted me to take the next step and start praying with and for others. And he sent an angel to get me started. The next step, I was in my late 40s, when God put it on my heart to pray and fast. And again, with much fear and trepidation, I was obedient. But through prayer and fasting, I've been able to witness God's power firsthand. Through praying and fasting with others, I have personally witnessed financial turnarounds, physical turnarounds, vocational callings, in spiritual breakthroughs. Today, God is leading me to take the next step and be more proactive in sharing my faith. I love playing pool, and I play on a pool team with people who follow Jesus. And through pool, I've met hundreds of different pool players, but I've noticed only one of them. If you remember, Judy said, if, they notice, if you notice them, they're yours. And this one's name is Jimmy. Let me tell you about Jimmy. Jimmy is a phenomenal pool player. If once a night, if I do something that's called a break and run, where I break the balls and then I shoot all my balls in and then the eight ball, I'm a happy camper. It's like, wow, I done good. Jimmy can do this up to four times in a row, back to back, just game after game after game. It's, it's, it's amazing. Of course, that is when he's sober, which isn't very often. And what's funny is, other than that, I really don't know much about Jimmy. I don't know him that well. All I know is that God has put Jimmy on my heart and that I need to take the next step. And that's to pray and to intercede for him and to tell him about Jesus. And even though this is, again, way out of my comfort zone, I'm currently taking the next step and I'm praying for him, I'm fasting over him, and I'm in the process of witnessing and sharing my story and God's story with him. 
Every time that I have been obedient to God and have taken the next step, I have been blessed. But more importantly, God has allowed me to be a blessing to others and has given me the privilege of seeing his hand work in people. There's three things that I've learned lately. Number one, the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's prompting us to take that next step. The Holy Spirit, he leads, he guides us, he teaches us, but he always leaves us free to choose our response. Number two, if you notice them, they're yours. Number three, it all starts with prayer. It's okay to be scared. I was, I am. But I still took the next step. And I'm going to leave you guys with one question. What's the next step that God is asking you to take? Thanks, Michael. Well, we see in the remainder of the story in John 4 that many Samaritans from the town believed because of the woman's testimony. Many people have believed in Jesus because of Michael's testimony. And he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay, and he stayed for two more days. And because of his words, many more came to believe. This woman had believed in Jesus for like, what, an hour? And, and now the whole town is coming to meet him. And when Jesus says to the disciples, remember, meanwhile, they're saying, Rabbi, eat something. And so Jesus and his disciples are standing there, and he says, look, the fields are ripe for the harvest. When he says that, I believe when the disciples turned and looked, there's the Samaritan village walking through the fields, coming to meet Jesus. People are walking through, people that the disciples have written off. I sat on, on a Thursday, Thursday? Thursday morning with a friend, and with tears in his eyes, he said, I had written my brother off. I thought he was too cool to know Jesus. And I was in Bible study with him this fall, and he knows who Jesus is now. He has surrendered to Jesus. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I, I, my faith is so weak, I didn't think that he could do it. This whole field of people, all led by this woman. This woman who an hour before this was a social outcast. This woman who an hour before this was caught in an immoral life and just kind of eking out an existence. And the disciples didn't pray. They didn't talk to anyone else. But the people were convinced because the woman shared her story. She just said, simply, come and meet a man who knew everything I ever did. They knew her past. She communicated God's power, and she said, come and meet him. She gave them an invitation. That's, that's all sharing her story was. They knew her past. She said, come and meet a man who knew what I ever did. She communicated power. He knew. And, and come and meet him. She gave an invitation. Um, when was the last time that you were so excited that you didn't need to eat? Michael said he's taken up prayer and fasting. Where, where doing God's work is so exhilarating that, that praying for someone like Jimmy gives such nourishment. It's, it's happened a few times in my life, but, but not enough. And, and, and do you know your story? 
Do you know when and how God has flooded your life, either because he came in in a miraculous way or like Michael's story, little streams of water that just flowed until he was filled up with God and said yes to Jesus. It doesn't matter which way God fills you. One's more dramatic than the other, but in both cases, God fills you and you can say yes to him. And can you tell that story? Do you have it written down? There's no better time than than today. And we have sheets in the back if you want help with that. Because Easter's coming. And, And every day for us is Easter. We can live out the good news. And people want to hear the story around Easter. There's no better time than today to do that. What is God calling you to do? I'll take up Michael's question. What is your next step? God, thank you that uh, you work in our lives. God, as we, as we sing of your praises um, before we end the day, we, um, together, we acknowledge that you're here, that you love everyone, that you look to the fields that are ripe for harvest. God, what are the fields that you're calling us to? Who are the people that we have written off in our lives, that you are pulling towards you. God, help us to be like the Samaritan woman and not like the disciples who said, I just don't get it, or I'm more concerned about food, or I'm more concerned about my own life than I'm concerned about people coming to know Jesus. God, meet us where we are today. Correct us if we need correcting. Comfort us if we need comforting. We want to go through this week, God, aware of your presence, acknowledging that you are the king, but not a king that that lords it over the people, not a king that is concerned about his own power. You are a king that, that selflessly gives so that others will know you. Speak to us, Spirit, about what our step and response needs to be.